Greetings, 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 and welcome back, folks, to the Africanist Podcast. I am your host, Bambanjai, and today I am delighted to be back for another special episode with another special guest. I hope that everybody is having a wonderful summer. Uh, my colleagues who just resumed the academic year, I hope you are having a wonderful semester. A big shout out to our students. Uh, congratulations to our students who graduated over the summer and in the spring. And welcome back to our returning uh, students. As usual, do not forget to follow us on social media. You can follow us on Facebook and also on X, formerly known as Twitter. Our X slash Twitter handle is the Africanist P and the number one, the Africanist P one. And you can find the Africanist podcast on Facebook as well. Today, I'm very excited to present to you an episode with a friend and a colleague, uh, Susan Elizabeth Gagliardi. And Susan is an associate professor of art history at Emory University. Her scholarship draws on extensive study in West Africa with a focus on Western Burkina Faso, as well as archival and project-centered research. This episode would not have been possible without the wonderful work of our wonderful graduate student, Chelsea Moni, who conducted the interview with Dr. Susan Gagliardi. So shout out to Chelsea and thank you very much for your contribution in this episode. So a little more about Chelsea and her background. Chelsea Moni is a PhD candidate in the Art History Department at Emory University. She holds a BA in Communication Studies from Concordia University in Canada and an MA in Museum Studies from SOAS in London. Moni's PhD research investigates some of the ways that African art makers historically enacted personhood by creating artwork that invoked humor, satire, and storytelling to captivate foreign and colonial audiences. Drawing on the creative methodologies of black critical scholars like Tina Kamp and Sadia Hartman, Moni seeks to vocalize the deep-rooted silence and gaps implicit in recorded African histories while also grappling with questions of evidence and knowledge production in the study of African art history. Outside of her PhD, Moni dreams of a slow life where she can dance, rekindle her deep love of literature, and take care of her cat and plants. Here is the conversation between Chelsea and Dr. Susan Gagliardi. Thank you for staying tuned. Hello, my name is Chelsea Moni. I am a third year PhD student at Emory University studying African art history. I am really interested in African perspectives of African art, and I am in the process of starting my research and really understanding what that means to me as an African woman as well. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with my advisor, Susan Elizabeth Galliardi, who is an associate professor in the artistry department at Emory University. Susan has a PhD from the University of California, Los Angeles, 
where she studied African art history with four Africanists who served on her committee. So her committee was made up of Stephen Nelson, who was the committee chair, Zoe Strother, the primary advisor, the late Mary Polly Muter Roberts, and Alan F. Roberts. Susan's first book, Sanufo Unbound, investigates the history of the term Sanufo and its application to one of the most celebrated styles of West African art. And Susan's second book was just released earlier this year. So Susan, could you tell us about the general ideas and concepts that you explore in your second book? Sure. Thank you so much, Chelsea, for interviewing me today and talking with me about my second book, Seeing the Unseen Arts of Power Associations on the Sanufo Monde Cultural Frontier. And the really um, big kind of general ideas and concepts that I wanted to get at in that book, and I've learned in kind of thinking about my own research, the big ideas and concepts that kind of propel me generally are ideas and questions around how do we know and what does it mean to know. I'm also very interested in thinking about what our concepts, categories, and methods are for knowing. And I'm concerned with the subjective and contextual nature of knowledge. So for me, studying African art and African art history is a way to get at those bigger questions that I hope have broader applicability. Um, but by using specific examples, I hope to, to think about those questions in ways that, that might help us reflect on what we know and how we know. And you, you offer a number of personal details about your family and heritage in the beginning of your book. And this was really surprising for me because you don't necessarily talk about your personal life so much. Um, and it was particularly interesting to see how you draw connections between, you know, how you grew up, where you grew up and the work that you're doing today. So how does your personal life influence how you approach your research in African art history? Yeah, thank you for that. It's um, an aspect of the book that was actually, it was very important to me. Um, and people have responded to it in, in very different ways. Since I approach knowledge as subjective and contextual, so I always think that our knowledge and how we understand things is dependent on who we are, where we are, how we see things. I thought I had a responsibility to the reader to try to explain to the reader as best as possible how I was approaching the topic and also, you know, how I looked back at it. Because it's also the case that when I started the subject, I didn't, um, of research, I didn't exactly kind of understand what about me was motivating me to ask the questions I was asking. But um, having now written a number of personal statements you know, for my own career, whether it's for a grant application or to apply for a job or whatever it is, I found that the process of kind of looking back and thinking about the questions that I've asked led me to realize that, you know, there, there's a kind of through line in what interests me even before I started to study African art history. And that has to do with how we know and what it means to know and what kinds of power is involved in knowing. Um, but I can remember two specific incidents that really, for me, solidified the fact that in my book I should address my own subject position. So 
One had to do with a conversation uh, with my sister. I have two sisters, and they both often read my work and comment on it, as do my parents. Um, but my sister made the point that at some point um, that my arguments really seem to reflect my own experiences and perspectives of the world. So I, I tried to kind of wrestle with that and think about what, what she meant. And then I had another opportunity shortly after I published my first book, Sinufo Unbound, to present an aspect of that work at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where um, Emily Burrell was a historian. She's since moved to the University of Virginia, so she's, she's still a historian, but she's an historian who has worked with many of the same histories and archival materials that I have. Um, she did research in uh, southeastern Mali. And her father also comes from the same small town in central Massachusetts where I grew up. So she understands the area of the world where I grew up, and she understands the research material that I was working with. And the morning after my lecture, I was standing in her kitchen, and she said something about how, you know, like someone coming from Orange or maybe only someone coming from Orange, Massachusetts, where I grew up, would have the kind of argument that that I would have. And so having not only my sister make that point, but also a scholar who was familiar with the actual materials that I was looking at make that point made me think, you know, I really needed to think about that and, and think about what was there. I will say I was very much... Um, kind of relieved when another reader of Seeing the Unseen pulled me aside and said that they very much appreciated the way in which I spent time kind of explaining my own subject position. And this person thought that it was very, um, it was very generative to help the reader understand how I arrived at my conclusions. And so if that succeeds, then I'm that that's my aim. So it's not really meant to be so much about like, look at me, but more like, okay, this is who I am, and this is how I see things. And so any reader then hopefully can kind of understand how my own subject position informs what what follows. I, I don't know if that distinction makes sense to you. But um, yeah, I didn't want it to be about me to be about me, but to be about me to help the reader understand the arguments that I'm trying to make. haven't really spoken about the book before this podcast um, so I haven't had the chance to tell you that it was actually really refreshing for me as a reader to to have all these personal details you know and learn about your family history um, as especially as someone who is you know I just finished coursework I just finished my exams and I'm now going into the research pre-dissertation process and I've always struggled with separating who I am, my personality from the work that I do. And I think in academia, I'm around a lot of people who which would much rather distance who they are from their work. And so it's so it's really great to have a, an example of, you know, seeing the unseen where you're telling us essentially that my perspective and how I approach this work would not exist without um 
without my upbringing in Orange, you know, and without the family that I have. Um, yeah, it was just really refreshing, refreshing and thinking about other scholars that I re- respect, they do similar things in their work and that it's a great example for me to model as I approach my own work. And speaking of, you know, the personal and work, so when I started reading your book, I had moments of discomfort because of the subject matter. You know, growing up African, I grew up in Cameroon, Tanzania, and I also spent some time in Congo. Um, I approach power objects, which are the, you know, the, the main topic of your book. Um, I approach power objects as important forces that have to stay away, that I have to stay away from and respect. And I also really fear them. Um, I have vivid memories of when I would, you know, go back to my village in Cameroon and we call them Juju where I come from. You know, I remember me and my cousins running away because that's what we were expected to do. Um, so yeah, so as I was reading your book, a part of me was like, oh wow, Susan is about to re- reveal some secrets about something that is so... I don't want to say important, but just something that is instilled in me, you know, and it's a knowledge that is out of reach, but it's still there. But, you know, as I, as I continue reading your book, I realized that you're not so much concerned with explaining how power associations and power objects work. What you focus on are the interactions between people, objects and ideas across time and space that constitute power associations and institutions. So with that being said, could you please tell us why you think it's important to study power? Yeah, that's a a very big question, and I appreciate the the question and and the honesty about your own response to uh, like what I'm going to read about power objects. I do want to back up um, just to say in terms of the personal. In fact, um, even when I was when I was in Western Burkina Faso doing research for my dissertation and it's that research that that became the basis for seeing the unseen um, in conjunction with archival research and museum-based research and object-centered research actually um, the notes that I wrote at the time combine the personal with the research um, and sometimes I have moments of of pause now but my thinking at at the time was, any interview that I conducted, any anything that I observed, my understanding of that was going to be contingent on so many other things, right? Like whether or not I was happy about what I had eaten that day or whether or not I was feeling tired or I was concerned about something happening with my family far away, you know, with whom I had very limited contact at the time, something like that. So I thought that just kind of as a as a document, as a record of my research process, it was actually important to keep the the two things um, together. And in part, uh, it was reading Daniel Reed's book, also published by Indiana University Press, that had inspired me to realize that my own personal experiences and interactions um, were something that I could record in my my notes. His book was not alone in that. Uh, there was a kind of trend that I was observing before I started doing my research, but it was something that I wanted to kind of keep keep together. Um, Whereas I think oftentimes scholars may have separated their kind of personal notes from from their interview notes and and their kind of, you know, quote unquote work notes. But I do think it's hard. We're, I'm a single person. So the personal, the professional, they're they're very much intertwined, I think. 
So power objects, as I understand them, are not um, things to be taken lightly, right? Um, the reason that that I use the term power object is I'm drawing on on the work of Patrick McNaughton, an art historian who has also done research on similar kinds of organizations that span Western West Africa, and the specialists, um, the experts who are the leaders of these organizations, learn how to harness the the, the power that's embedded in um, tangible materials and in tangible energies to concentrate that into an object and to use that object as a tool in order to effect change. So that change can range from someone's looking for a spouse, someone wants to resolve a conflict, someone wants to do well on an exam, someone um, you know, is concerned about a stomach ailment, right? We might, in the United States, separate people into medical doctor, psychiatrist, um, guidance counselor, spiritual advisor, these different kinds of categories. But people who make power objects are, are working in all of those capacities to solve various kinds of problems. But um, they also recognize that the capacity to heal and to help implies the capacity to cause harm. And so I think that's often where, right, that there's a hesitation because it it's, there's a clear recognition, I think, that someone who knows how to make and manage a power object understands how to help and heal people, but that can also have negative consequences, right? It depends on one's subject position, um, one's intent and the way that one uses that particular knowledge. So ju just to, to say, um, if I'm understanding you correctly, I can understand that kind of resistance, right? And also recognizing that the, the knowledge to heal and thus the knowledge to cause harm is not just knowledge that's like widely distributed, right? That there's a responsibility that comes with that particular kind of knowledge. So for me, when I was doing research on power objects, from the beginning, I recognized that there were many things that were going to be off limits to me. And that was something that I had to, to think about, because I think oftentimes there's the image of the person with the PhD who's supposed to be the all-knowing authority. And I knew that I was studying something that it was never going to be the all-knowing authority, right? Like, I never wanted to learn how to make a power object. That wasn't my aim. Um, but what I did want to try to get at was I wanted to understand dynamic histories uh, in this area of the continent. So my own research was based in Western Burkina Faso, but I'm really looking at things, as I've said, that spanned West, that span to spanned and continue to span Western West Africa. Um, and so uh, I realized that we have power objects in European and North American museum collections, and they're often presented in very generic terms. They're often presented as attached to a singular cultural or ethnic group and kind of with a, a blank description of this thing was used in this way. 
but I I thought that it might be more complicated than that, that power objects might actually transcend cultural and ethnic group categories. And that wasn't just kind of on my own that I had this idea, but Barema Diamatani in 1999 wrote a dissertation showing, for example, that some objects um, in organizations that we have thought of in Europe and North America as belonging to one particular cultural or ethnic group actually appear elsewhere. And so I, I wanted to know how that happens. Um, and I started to see that this very potent knowledge is exchanged across vast interpersonal networks, regardless of cultural or ethnic group affiliation. And so I think it's also important, at least from a U.S. perspective, to keep in mind that this is a region of the world where people speak multiple languages. So people don't have to share a language to necessarily be able to share information. They might share that information in a lingua franca. So I started to realize that power associations aren't necessarily tied to a specific cultural or ethnic group and that um, they're transcending cultural and ethnic groups. They're transcending geographies. They transcend religion. And so I wanted to focus on those kinds of histories and interactions. like reflecting on your your responses now and you're dealing with a lot of nuance and and also a lot of different knowledge and epistemologies in this one book right because you're in conversation with phds so academics who have studied these topics and published about them um, and who continue to do so you're also in contact with power association leaders in Burkina Faso in West Africa and also you mentioned the Netherlands so I imagine other countries in the world and you're also bringing together your own experiences and how you grew up and I'm sort of wondering how you you're managing all of these things right um and then translating them into a book that's very legible and easy to understand and on top of that because you mentioned you did this research for your PhD, which you received in 2010, and now your book just got released this year. So could you maybe reflect on your writing process between getting your PhD and this year? Yeah, um, great question. So I would say, I think that the kind of first part of your question in terms of epistemologies to me, it's an act of translation in some ways, right? I'm trying to already, right? When I was in Western Burkina Faso, I was working with Daba Watra, who, um, as I explain in the book, you know, was was critical, right, for introducing me to people and places and also um, translating for me. So, I mean... The, the strength of my knowledge comes not only from what, say, Karfa Kulabali had to say to me, but how 
Dabawatra explained to me what Karpakula Bali said to me, and then how Dabawatra and I then talked about that and and decided kind of where next to to go. So it's really important to to recognize, you know, Daba's Daba's role in that. So what I'm trying to get at is that's already layers of translation, right? And then you mention people with PhDs or not maybe in North America and Europe. And yeah, writing a dissertation or writing a book with an academic press while I have a faculty position in a North American institution means in some ways I already am oriented towards people who read academic books in North America and in and in Europe. Um, on the other hand, I'm aware that other people may be able to access the book. It was important to me to make the book open access. I was delighted that as soon as I recognized it was open access, I could send the link to Dabba Watra and he could see it, right? So like immediately he could see it before even the printed version was in anybody's hands. Um, and that uh, Dabba does actually read English. It means a lot to me that Dabba was able to start reading the book and comment on it. And I hope that what Daba and others read reflects what they have experienced, right? So in that sense, I hope that I have done the best I could to translate, knowing that no translation is ever going to be perfect, right? Um, And knowing that there are lots of things that I don't have access to that was already built into the research um, project for the reasons that we have already discussed and, and also for, for others. So it has meant a lot to me when people from Western Burkina Faso, including some of the people I've already mentioned, have said to me that, yes, indeed, like I'm describing things that, that are relatable to them, that they that I seem to have captured the things that they have experienced, right, in a way that doesn't reveal secrets because I very much didn't want to get to secrets um, but that seems to describe what's happening in the dynamic um, histories of them then you asked about my writing process yeah so yes for my for my PhD I would say I was primarily focused on information that I had, acquired through conversations with people in Western Burkina Faso. After um, I finished my PhD, I made some return visits to Western Burkina Faso for a variety of complicated reasons. Um, I haven't returned to ask some of my more pressing questions now, but I do have a a set of questions that I would love to to ask at some point. Um, But I also then, after the PhD, visited more archives, um, visited museums in order to look more specifically at individual objects, and also added uh, the chapter on Yalen. So like the structure of the dissertation is a bit different than the structure of the book, even though there's information in the dissertation that you'll find in the book, because in the dissertation, I was more focused on the argument that power associations sponsor the exchange of potent knowledge across vast interpersonal networks based on my conversations with, with people in Western Burkina Faso and other bits of evidence. 
But then for the book, I'm, I was able to kind of take a little bit more of a step back and really think about the argument of the tension between seeing the unseen, but or seeing and the unseen, but not only with respect to power, power association, objects and performances, but also in terms of like what we know and what we what we don't know and what our methods were. And I think that 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 time gave me time to kind of see a little bit more like what motivates me, what kinds of questions I'm interested in. Plus, having written my first book, Sanufo Unbound, I felt like some of my arguments I tried to come at a little bit more gently. And with seeing the unseen, I tried to be a bit more direct in some of the arguments that I was making. So, Thank you for reflecting on your process. I think it's very helpful for me, at least, and I hope it's also helpful for the listeners of this podcast. And to return to more of the specific vocabulary that you use in your book, could you please tell us um, about the difference between a power association and a chapter? Yeah, thank you very much. And lots of people ask about this phrase, power association. Um, and it's one also that when when people have translated my work, they have, they sometimes translate it in ways that I, that aren't, that don't quite capture what I'm trying to get at. So, you know, referring to these organizations as power associations, I'm again drawing on the work of Patrick McNaughton. Um, so maybe like more common phrases, things that might on the surface seem more familiar to people would be if I were to call these organizations secret societies or initiation associations. Um, but I very deliberately don't because I think that there's a certain valence to those terms because they've been used so often that we it's kind of like, oh, yeah, we know what it is, but we don't really look at what it is and think about what it is and why. And while secrecy is part of how power associations operate, I don't actually think that that is the central principle. Um, I think they're ultimately concerned with how to manage potent knowledge in order to effect change in people's lives. Um, and it's in that sense that I'm thinking about, about power. Um, so I see power associations as a kind of organization or institution that at times have been referred to as secret societies or initiation associations or um, brotherhoods or confraternities. There has also been an emphasis on the maleness, so the male dominance of power associations, uh, which which I have also tried to, to look at and think about. So a power association is a kind of organization. Some of the ones that are common in the area of Western Burkina Faso, where I did my research, are Como, Kono, so Como with an M, Kono with an N, Wara, uh, Hunters Associations. So those are they're kinds of organizations, and then they're, they have specific names. Um, and then a chapter is say, an instance of that organization in a particular 
town. And some towns might actually have several chapters of the same organization. So you might, one way to think of it is um, like the Rotary Club, Lions Club, Freemason. So if you go into a town, you know, like my hometown and the neighboring hometown um, had different chapters of these kind of big national and international organizations. Sometimes there are even signs on the edge of the town announcing like that they have these chapters, but not every single town has the same constellation of organizations, right? And what I'm also, um, or what I also saw was that like one town might have two chapters of Como and they may or may not be linked to each other. That varies. The other thing I would say, I, I would only make a loose kind of connection to Rotary, Lions Club, Freemasons in that Como and Kono, as I have understood them, WARA, the Hunters Associations, are not as um, hierarchical in terms of having like a main headquarters and then the chapters, but there are relationships among different chapters. So for example, a chapter in one town might derive from a chapter in another town so that there are those relationships, but it's more a network than it is a hierarchy with a main headquarters. Thank you for that distinction because I vividly remember um, in the book you mentioned maybe a few times of people who would go into another town and sort of buy in to an association so that they can start it in their own town. Correct. Right. So there's this language of either buying a chapter or marrying a chapter. So once someone or a family decides that they want to acquire and install a, their own power association chapter, it's it's not just like, oh, I want a, a new shirt today. Right. It's 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 a significant investment because it means taking on all of that knowledge and and committing to cultivating that knowledge and managing it, right? So it entails establishing a relationship with another chapter, building that knowledge over time, acquiring the materials, the the things, the knowledge that one needs to establish a chapter, and then establishing that chapter, always kind of with recognition of the relationship that someone, you know, the, the kind of foundational um, orientation of the chapter comes from its relationship with another. So the buying is a way to, to say buying is a way to reflect the investment that's entailed in the marriage, when one talks about marrying another chapter, that's also a way to signal the investment, but also the negotiation and exchange that happens. Right. And so if these associations are not, or rather, if these organizations are not hierarchy, if there are no hierarchies in these organizations, then I guess, what is the status of the person who buys the chapter? So there is, I mean, I don't want to say there's absolutely no hierarchy, right? So there is a sense of respect from the, like the chapter that buys from another or marries another, right? There is this, a sense of um, obligation to, to the chapter that existed before. 
I'm when I say there's no hierarchy, it's, I mean that there's not like a central headquarters that sends out a mandate to all other power association chapters. Like there's not, to my knowledge, could be, but to my knowledge, there's not like the central Como, you know, headquarters that sends out dictates to all other Como chapters. So throughout the book, you use the term unrecorded maker instead of unknown artist when referring to the makers of some of the objects that you discuss. Could you explain your decision your decision to identify these makers as unrecorded rather than unknown? Yeah, throughout the book, I tried to I tried to think carefully about the terms that I used and when, and I and. I would have to look back at my dissertation, but I think that there would be an example of where you might see changes in my terminology. Um, but I think I came to think about unknown as not not quite accurate because the person was known to someone. They were known at, at the very least to themselves, um, if not to other people. Now, it is it is the case, for example, that... So one kind of power object is a helmet mask. And at the base of that helmet mask is a wooden, think of it kind of as the form of a baseball cap, and then materials are added to it. And a blacksmith might sculpt that wooden base. Now, when I interviewed people in Western Burkina Faso, I came to understand that the, the knowledge of who creates that wooden base, which blacksmith, is not that's not widely advertised. So it's not like, oh, this is this person's helmet mask. And that information is kind of offered on a need-to-know basis. So it is true that, you know, the name of the maker may not be broadly advertised, right? But that person is still, at the very least, known to themselves and the person who commissioned the work from them. And the person who commissioned the work from them chose that person for some reason. Now, it might be that they had a personal connection to them. It might be that they um, you know, were intrigued or, or wanted some aspect of the kinds of things that that person can make. I mean, there can be any variety of reasons. Um, but anyway... Unknown didn't seem to work to me. So unrecorded was meant to or is meant to signal that, to my knowledge, the names have not been recorded somewhere. Maybe someone, right? Um, but that information hasn't been passed down uh, to me. And so I just I wanted to to acknowledge that and then also recognize that um there are multiple people, oftentimes, not always, who are involved in the construction of power objects, um, and that there are individuals who are not necessarily tied to some kind of studio art practice or to the international art world or engaged in, um, 
kind of European and Euro-American discourses about art history, yet I still very much see the people, you know, the unrecorded makers as experimenting with and inventing um, ways of constructing power association objects or power objects. They're paying careful attention to materials, how to manipulate those materials, how to how to put them together, and also then how people are, are going to respond to what they make and create. And they're they're making things and performances that stand outside of the outside of the everyday. So, you know, I think I think that they are constructions and performances that that are worth looking at as an expression of knowledge and kind of evolving knowledge and dynamic histories. Um, but we don't always know who, who does those things. And in terms of vocabulary, you also use the term three-cornered region to situate the geographical focus of your study. So what does this term three-cornered region mean specifically? So that term um, is one that I borrow from Anita Glaze, an art historian who did research in Cote d'Ivoire, and refers to the three-corner region being defined by the borders of present-day Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire, and Mali. And so I use it as a shorthand, sometimes anachronistically, to refer to this geographic location. And so while it's imperfect, I preferred that imperfection to trying to designate place based on a specific cultural or ethnic group. Because I was trying to argue against trying to see, you know, the continent of Africa as carved up at any moment in time into discrete cultural or ethnic groups and instead as a, as a dynamic place. So I thought, okay, even though prior to colonization and the existence of present-day Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire, and Mali, the three-cornered region didn't exist, it seemed like a less um, contradictory term in terms of the ideas that I was trying to, to put out there um, and need, needed some way not to just kind of repeat myself each time to indicate uh, location. I would say, you know, that, that I have found has been another kind of challenge in the writing process is, you know, trying to be attentive to the specificity of each term, but then sometimes needing synonyms so as not to repeat myself. Um, yeah. That's a good tip. <laughs> um, so a few moments ago, you mentioned that, you know, while conducting your studies, um, you found out that secrecy is not the main point of power associations, right? Rather, the point is how different people are able to manage potent information across time and space. And I really see that in the book when you talk about ambiguity. So could you please tell us about the significance of ambiguity um, in power objects? And the bully is one that you discuss in particular. Yeah. Um, thank you. So I am someone who likes to try to be as specific and precise as I can be. And yet I'm, I am fascinated by this idea of ambiguity and realizing that sometimes ambiguity is actually a very deliberate and strategic choice. And so I've come to realize that, for example, 
with power associations and their objects. The idea may not be to, like, there are certain people who need to know, but that's not everybody. So that ambiguity is deliberate. The ambiguity can be a way of showing people, like, look, I know things, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you everything that I know. So, so take a look and you can see, um, but you can't know, you can't know everything, right? So there, to me, it's a recognition that um, when people are making power association objects, they're aware of their audiences, right? That they're trying to convey something very specific to their audiences. And that specificity could be the ambiguity, right? But so that then there's this interplay among the the maker, the object, and um, the audience. And that's an idea that really started to make sense to me, actually, when I was reading Dario Gamboni's work. So work about a different different context, right? About European and Euro-American art, but it resonated with me in some way in realizing that actually makers of power objects are, I think, you know, thinking in, in similar kinds of terms. And I think, too, also, um, sometimes, you know, I think there might be an impulse to kind of want like a, a dictionary, like we could open up this dictionary and say, oh, yeah, there's this feature in a power object or in a performance, and it means this thing. And I, I think that sometimes that's actually too simple, because different people might see the same thing and respond to it in different kinds of Way. So even the form of, say, the um, helmet masks for Como and Kono, for example, I have come to understand that ambiguity is built into the form. They're meant to evoke a variety of wild animals, but we're not, we don't necessarily need to insist on exactly the same reading. The idea that it's a composite creature that's drawing on some of the most... Um, fearsome elements of known animals is is enough but you and I could look at it and see it very differently right and so that allows for a multiplicity of meaning um, and then I think it also once we recognize actually that kind of trying to pinpoint exact meaning might be beside the point I think that allows us to ask questions about what we need to know and and why, right? Um, maybe we we don't, there isn't a necessity to know everything, or maybe we don't have the right to know everything. I mean, that's a very different position than the idea that, like, because I'm someone with a PhD, I'm supposed to know everything. perspective now to be academic and I recognize that this perspective could change I really struggle to grapple with the unquenchable thirst for knowledge that we have in academia and just needing to know everything and thinking that because we have access to something we need to know everything about it and I really wholeheartedly 
disagree with that perspective. And so it was it was really interesting to hear to see how you talk about ambiguity. Um, and you do talk about it extensively, and it really brought me back to my exam reading. I remember reading a few articles um, that were also dealing with power associations, and then, you know, the authors coming to very quick um, conclusions about certain aspects because they need an answer, you know? And for me, I'm like, well, what if the sort of point that you're struggling to look past is the point you know what i mean um but yeah so speaking from an academic perspective of you know we need to know things and we want to know things how might we respect ambiguity in academic institutions and museums yeah um i think that's a really important question because i agree with you that say, in universities, in museums, that there can be this impulse like, oh, we should we should know because we can. And I think it's really important to ask, like, really? <laughs> should we? And, and for me, this all actually also extends to recording, right? So since 2020, there's been an impulse to kind of record everything because we can. And I think that misses the opportunity to realize that something's might might just be intended for a very specific context, a conversation, or you know, even even a even a presentation. And so I think we might also then you know think about questions of, of access and and where those where that tension is, um, because I I do to me it's also important that that people have access to knowledge, but I think we have to think about when, where, in what circumstances, why. Um, and so I don't know if it means that everyone should have access to all knowledge all the time. I, th I think we have a responsibility to, to think about what that means. So with respect to power objects, for example, um, they exist in museum collections. There's a whole other debate happening all the time right now about whether or not they should exist in museum collections. Um, let, let's set that aside because that could be a whole other discussion that we could we should go into. If they do exist in museum collections, then I think we should ask questions about um, how we approach objects. So for example, working with conservators on the study of power objects in museum collections, so especially with Robin O'Hearn and Ellen Perlstein, but also with other conservators. You know, we have thought about just because a conservator or other scientist could identify plant materials in power objects, like should they? And we came to the conclusion that maybe not, because at least with the Power Association leaders, um, you know, who who spoke to me most, um, I had the sense that the knowledge of specific plant matter was was the most restricted, or at least amongst the most restricted knowledge. So I didn't see what the value is for a scientist or a conservator sitting in the United States or in a European country to 
to find that information. To me, it's often about curiosity without a clear sense for like, we need to know that information. So um, I think we have to think about why we're curious and, and whether or not we should know that and sometimes be okay with the with the ambiguity. And I guess I'll also say, you know, I've seen I've seen and have come to appreciate this attention to ambiguity around place names. Um, so, you know, there are places in Western Burkina Faso and elsewhere that have multiple place names. And there is a rationale for not actually trying to decide that this place has one single definitive place name. And I can see that that actually may allow for different claims to that place and for for different histories without kind of trying to settle the matter and you know tipping tipping the scales of power in one way or another right it kind of lets it lets everyone have a claim even if those claims are are somewhat different and there there's an example of of ambiguity but i think it actually can be very constructive but yeah, when we're accustomed to wanting like the answer, sitting with ambiguity can feel uncomfortable. But I think I think that discomfort can be productive if we think about why it's there and what it's doing. Thank you. Um, so much like ambiguity and the importance of the unseen aspects of power objects and power associations, you also talk about the unseen audience of power association performances. And here specifically, you talk about women, where, you know, no access to power association performances results in a different kind of knowledge of these performances. So could you tell us how, or rather, could you tell us, according to your understanding, how women, who for the most part are banned from seeing these performances, still constitute another kind of audience? Yeah, thank you, Chelsea. Um, so actually, here's another example of a chapter. So the chapter in the book that deals with the unseeing audience, that material is, um, so I wrote in an article that was published in Africa that then became the basis for that chapter in the book, but it's not something that I was able to work through for the dissertation um, because I... I felt like I kind of understood what was going on, but I needed time to sit with it a bit more to really kind of wrap my head around the role of women and um, women's relationships to power associations. Because as I said before, the way power associations were often presented to me was as male-dominated. And oftentimes, when I would go to people in Western Burkina Faso and tell them that I was studying Como and Kono specifically, they would make it clear to me that women are not allowed to see Como and Kono performances. And I, in fact, was never allowed to see Como and Kono performances. And, you know, I think they were often puzzled, like, <laughs> why did my professors <laughs> send me to Western Burkina Faso to study this thing that I, that I couldn't even see? But I, I came to realize that that what it's not like the fact that women are prohibited from seeing them is it's actually part of the definition of Como and Kono. So women in that sense 
I started to think about how women are actually integral to, they're part of the definition of kamun kamun. They're not separate. Um, and then I realized, you know, and reflected on what women told me. And it was, you know, because I was spending a lot of time talking with power association leaders, mostly male, um, I had to find other other ways to talk with women. It would, like those conversations happened differently, but I did through the conversations with women come to learn that women were listening to what Como and Kono performers had to say. They sought interventions from Como and Kono performers. They attended performances even though they couldn't see them, and so they might stay inside darkened rooms, their own. Maybe they would even travel to someone else's room and stay in that room in order to listen to the performances. And I had the opportunity to do that twice. And then especially in one of those instances, the women with whom I stayed made it clear to me that there were certain things that I couldn't do. Like I couldn't turn on my flashlight inside the room because they were concerned that by turning on the flashlight inside the room, people outside might think I was trying to see outside. So I realized that they had internalized a certain way of witnessing and participating in the performances, even though they couldn't see them. And then I started to realize through reflecting on what people were telling me and also going back and reading what other people had reported, women were actually engaging with performers. So sometimes performers would actually stop and they would address women and children, right? So that performers were actually acknowledging that women were there, even if women couldn't see them. Um, and so I realized that perhaps power associations like Como and Kono are not male-dominated, but in fact reflect a different way of negotiating male and female spheres. chapter where you focus on women is definitely my favorite chapter in the book um and just hearing you talk about it now i mean i could record a whole different podcast episode just about this one chapter um you know you used to work witness just a minute ago and it made me think about how we tend to conflate witnessing something with seeing it but clearly there's so many other ways to witness an event um, and in the book, you know, like you just said, you talk about how women are able to witness these um, these performances without necessarily seeing them. And it also allowed me to reflect on, I guess, reflect on growing up on the continent and in the matriarchal family. You know, my mother is the oldest of all her siblings. And so my mother has had to take over roles that will typically be handled by a man, but also seeing sometimes when my mom understands, okay, it's time to step back and not be the oldest sibling. It's time for a man to take over. And not it necessarily being a sort of gender war, but more of a negotiation, like you said, a conversation. And I think it's a dance that 
people on the continent are constantly doing and sometimes when i read scholarship you know it's very easy to to conclude that you know patriarchy this or men are in charge or these are like male dominated spaces when in fact the absence of women does not necessarily or does not easily conclude that it's a male dominated anything um so yes i really really enjoyed that chapter um and so moving on from seeing the unseen specifically could you please talk to us about your first book and your next book project and how how do all three books speak to one another yeah thank you i'll just um i'll go back and say um i don't you're not the first person to tell me that you especially like that that chapter that is um that is what i've heard and the other thing that i'll say is i really actually needed to read saba mahmoud who explains a version of what you have just said that um you know there can be a tendency maybe in european and north american scholarship to kind of think of like two positions for women as either oppressed by men or resisting oppression by men um and Mahmoud pointed out that actually there are there are multiple possibilities and that's what that's what kind of allowed me to figure out oh right this is how I can write this because I I didn't see that women were like resisting male oppression with Komo and Kono but I did see that kind of negotiation and sometimes even a playfulness um that that was intriguing to me but I I didn't have the model for it right away, I think in part because of, you know, what I had internalized um, as a scholar who'd studied in North America and um, and in Europe. to the end of our conversation slash interview and I just have a few informal questions to ask you um so the first one is what are your top three dishes my top three dishes so um I think you can guess one of them ice cream for sure, <laughs> ice cream for sure. um well pizza and hamburgers I think Anywhere in the world where I go, those would be like three things I would just seek out for for comfort. Um, I mean, I like other things and I have tried to expand my my palate. But actually, for decades now, those have been my three go to foods. For a little while, I experimented with being a vegetarian until I had a dream of eating a hamburger and I made the mistake of telling a friend who insisted on bringing me to get a hamburger, at which point I tried to order a bean burger, but a friend wouldn't have it. So here I am 
pizza, burgers, and ice cream. What a supportive friend. <laughs> wow. Um, yes, I mean, not to spill more personal details about you, but I remember the first time you met in Paris, <laughs> and you were like, yeah, do you want to grab something to eat? Maybe something healthy? I don't know. In my mind, I'm like, oh, okay. I mean, I guess I could eat a salad, but like maybe this person is vegan. And you're like, yeah, so do you want burgers? <laughs> like, okay. Burgers are healthy? <laughs> I will never forget that memory. Um, and so what are your top three novels? Maybe we can do fiction. Right now. Rarely. <laughs> no. Um, if I, I mean, no. I read like the New Yorker, the New York Times, the New York Review of Books. I'm seeing a New York bias here, but before uh, I came to Atlanta, I lived in New York. Um, okay. No. Top three non academic novels. No, you're still stretching my mind. I was going to tell you that. <laughs> I was going to tell you the <laughs> the top two books that I've been talking about recently. The one about offenses? Oh, no. Yeah, you're right. Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. Yeah, you hear me talk about that a lot. No, I was going to mention um, Olufemi Taiwo's Elite Capture that another graduate student and another colleague recommended that I read. Um, and so I've read and that's come up a lot in conversations recently and then Tina Camp's listening to images which you happen to um, recommend that I read and we taught together because that's also come up a lot and I think both of those books they what I I mean I appreciate many things in both of those books but I think that they ask us to take what we think we know and and reconsider it, which is a move that I that I like. I like I like being unsettled um, and being asked to look at something that I think I know and and to try to look at that differently. And so I'm eager to read the other Olufemi Taiwo's against decolonization because I think it will do the the same the same thing. Exciting, and you know. Um... We're, we're going to South Africa this summer, and I have, for listeners out there, I put together a reading list that I want to read with Susan, and that reading list is 90% fiction. So by the end of my PhD, hopefully you will have top three top fiction novels. I'll make sure of that, actually. Plus a clean desk. <laughs> Questionable. Um, and what are your top three TV shows? Uh-huh. So, um, I know that you are excited to hear that I have watched all three seasons of Emily in Paris, which is true. I mean, it's hard for me to say that I have favorite TV shows because I actually don't love watching TV. But when I'm like really, really tired or if I'm really unhappy, then I'll watch TV. So, Emily in Paris, I've watched all three seasons. And then... Um, you did hear that right after I finished my dissertation, after I read the, like, I'd finished it, had my PhD, months later, I opened it back up to start writing from it. I read, and then I decided to go and 
watch Grey's Anatomy for a whole weekend as I processed what I had <laughs> read and started to think about how to how to write. And then a third one. Um, hmm. I mean, I can tell you that I recently watched Big Bang Theory, but I don't know if I like I don't know if I would say that's my favorite. I get it. I've also watched Big Bang Theory and it's easy to get into it, but I also wouldn't say it's my favorite. But if I had to, I can I can see why it's entertaining, you know? Yeah, TV shows kind of fill my time when I'm tired or unhappy. Interesting. Hmm. I have recommended a few TV shows, so we'll also work on that. <laughs> And so finally, what are the top three places on your bucket list? Well, I have a sister who's talked a lot recently about Croatia, so I'm kind of curious and want to go to Croatia. Um, I was supposed to spend a bit of time in Sweden in the spring of 2020, and so I'm still curious and want to go to Sweden. And then... My husband's father's family came from Japan, so I think we should go to Japan. So those are three places. Those are three beautiful places. Exciting. Hopefully we can make that happen. Hopefully you can make that happen. And go hiking. If you you must. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for speaking with me about seeing the unseen. And I have many more years of the PhD, so I'm sure we will keep talking about this book and the different topics that you explore in the book. Thank you so much, Chelsea. Du ton pour la paix. Quand